AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for April 19th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by John Markley online. Welcome, John. Thank you. Great spring here day in St. Louis. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, the weather is getting much better. We have Manny Ortiz here. Pleasure. Welcome, Manny. Thanks. And John Hogeboom. Welcome back, back John. Back again. Back again. <laughs> like a bad penny. I keep turning up. <laughs> and I'm Brian Ruxrode. And, uh, well, we're going to start out today with a ransomware segment of the program. It's probably going to become sort of a routine part of this until we get a little bit of a better handle on this, and I mean that collectively as an industry. So, uh, Manny, we'll start with you, and uh, I guess this is a little bit of a good news story, right? Yeah, a little bit. We'll see where the, the ending of this story goes, but um, <laughs> we'll start off with it being good news. Um, and as you said, we're, you know, I think in the last couple of weeks, ransomware has been sort of a theme. So this one just has a little bit of a, uh, of a twist. So in this particular case, we, we're talking about this security researcher um, with a Twitter handle of Jack, um, he found this new ransomware called uh, CryptoHost. Like in typical uh, ransomware style, um, it demands uh, 0.33 Bitcoins, which is actually a little bit on the lower end. I think mm -hmm. it's usually about 300 bucks. This is about 140 US dollars. And it's usually seen bundled with a uTorrent installer. In this particular case, the, what makes it a little bit different is, is with typical ransomware, the, your data is actually encrypted. In this case, your data is actually not encrypted. It's actually just copied to a folder. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually a, a, a Windows roaming folder, and it's, it's RARD, and the, the RAR file is actually, actually password protected. Mm -hmm. So That might explain why it's cheaper. That might be. <laughs> <laughs> encryption is very costly. They the <laughs> encryption part, because I think RAR actually does yeah. encrypt it, does it when you use a password. I don't know yeah. what the, you know, right. but right. it's just their own whatever version. Right. Yeah. Maybe you want to crack it. It's a little different situation. Right. <laughs> okay, so go ahead, Manny. So in this particular case, uh, it's it, the, 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 the RAR file is actually password uh, protected with a, a 41 character password. Um, it's, uh, and, and it'll, in, in a second, we'll go over what that, how that, uh, they actually create the password. But it's actually being detected as two different things, as ransom, MSIL. I don't even know how to say, if that's even sayable. It's a my name crypt dot A. My name crypt, yeah. And ransom uh, crypto host dot A. Right. Um, so again, so the, the, the password, the, 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 the thing about this one is that they basically, the researchers figured out how the password was actually created. Mm. So in this case, what they did was they, the password is actually created out of a couple of things. So what they did was the, the writer put the, pro, the processor ID, mm -hmm. the, the volume serial number, and the motherboard serial number oh, um, yep. with the dashes removed. Oh, is, yeah. um, so, so basically all of that slammed together with the current logged on username. So at the end, so you've got all of these, these, uh, mm -hmm. these basically characters put together, and then at the end, you add in 
the um, the actually currently logged in username, mm -hmm. um, and that basically makes up the, the the password. And that will unlock. So you just go find the file, which is actually located in that roaming folder. And okay. this one actually, when the raw when the raw program like Seven Zip asks you for the for the password, that would be the password for okay. it. So do you know if anybody's coming out with basically a automated undo it tool? There are a couple tools. So the, the, the site where I saw this site had an actual tool mm -hmm. which will actually go in and pull the password for you. So it actually just does right. the calculation for you, creates mm -hmm. the password so it's nice and easy for you to, you know, so if you don't want to actually go do the calculations yourself, you can go and do that. Um, and then there was a couple of steps to removing the, the malware itself, which is basically just stopping the, the, the crypto host um, executable process, deleting the file itself, and then removing it from the auto run. Um, which will which will basically remove it, and moving over to sort of the bad news on this is is that you know as we all know, the pro the next iteration, which is probably going to be the B iteration of this, I'm sure they're going to fix this. Yeah, they're likely going to fix some right. aspect of this. That's <laughs> right. true. Yeah. So, so the, the the real answer is don't get infected in the first place. That, yeah. So any news about how this is being propagated typically? So I think the, the the way that they said was it was it was being done with a with a uTorrent installer. So mm -hmm. any place that folks are downloading, you know, the the actual uTorrent um, clients, mm -hmm. right. I'm assuming that's where, where that's where they're getting yeah. it. So you know, we haven't talked about that kind of thing. We are, we're always talking about making sure you get your mobile apps from a, from a reputable place. Right. We're always talking about you know a lot of the cases. Most of this ransomware that we've seen has been basically through spamming campaigns. Yep. And so, but you still have to pay attention to where you get your software for anything, exactly. quite frankly, right? <laughs> yep. I think one of the things about Torrent is, you know, uTorrent, these various clients, most of the people who are using it, I would say the majority of the traffic is probably not Relative. legitimate file sharing. Yeah. So they're already getting a tool to engage in something that's not quite right. legitimate, usually. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's not the, the, you know, the primary, you know, I, I thought you were going to say they're probably a little more cognizant of the security concerns, oh, no, but perhaps not. <laughs> I think that's very unlikely. <laughs> okay. So, John, you're saying we shouldn't protect, the, we don't need to worry about protecting the criminals. Is that what you're saying? Perhaps it helps the uh, the, the the folks that are running this this uh, ransomware make them feel a little more comfortable with what they're doing. Right. Uh, I'm just saying, <laughs> in any event, you know, people who are engaged in a lot of BitTorrent typically yeah. are younger people sharing lots of videos or files or games or other software. So that they might, might be not another reason be. the ransom's a little bit lower because they've done some market study on the uh, financial right. <laughs> facilities of their clientele. Right, right. <laughs> clientele, I like that. <laughs> okay, John, so... Uh, yeah, so one. this is just, and we don't have to go into a lot of detail on this one. This is kind of a follow-up or an update. I want to say maybe two, three weeks ago we covered this on the show. It's a, a variant of ransomware called Petya. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that uh, correct, but in any event, another ransomware variant. The one that kind of made this one a little bit interesting is that instead of um, encrypting the files on the, uh, on the system, it's actually encrypting the master boot record and the file allocation table. So it's a little bit more damaging. You can't even like really get access to your hard drive because mm -hmm. you don't even know where any of the files are actually stored on the hard disk. You could probably recover some of that with forensics and whatnot mm -hmm. uh, manually if you had to, but it's not something for not the faint of heart. Some researcher came out, and I didn't really read the entire scheme of how he figured this out, but I guess there's some weakness in the encryption scheme that they used here. 
He has a web page you can go to, and um, if you do still have a disk that's encrypted with this, if you got hit with this ransomware and you still have it laying around, potentially uh, this website could help you out by showing you what the actual encryption key is that's, that was used. Uh, so it's kind of a brute force, it looks like, mm -hmm. uh, process that it uses to compute what the key is and figure out what the correct one was that was used. So Okay, very cool. So this, uh, obviously, somebody was motivated to probably. figure this out. Yeah, probably some guy, this guy got hit with it and said, I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> and he did. So um, in any event, it seems like that's kind of the case we've seen. Like even the last one you talked about, not a particularly savvy scheme for key creation right. on that last one. This one may be a little bit more savvy, but still had a weakness inherent mm -hmm. in it. And then we talk about other ransomware where they actually will go out to a command and control to encrypt mm -hmm. each individual file. That's a little bit even more advanced. That's why I think what we recommend normally is if you do get hit with ransomware, as soon as you figure it out, disconnect from the network because that could stop that process of encrypting mm -hmm. your files if it is yeah. one of those types. Yeah. So. Since you mentioned the cryptography aspect of this or the key generation, you know, um, I think it was just this, you know, it, Bruce Schneier has a, a, a monthly blog. Do you either, if you follow that, I think a lot of folks do. You know, he comes back from his background, you know, dating way back when is in cryptography. And, uh, you know, he's, he's always been saying that uh, cryptography looks easy. But it really isn't. You know, when you get right down to the nuts and bolts of it, it's the mathematics is only a piece of it. There's a, there are a lot of nuances around it, and the key management ultimately becomes a big part. And I remember Ed Amorosa in his quote, he, said, he was like, you know, if you're in a meeting and, you know, you want to sound impressive, just say, you know, all of this is, looks good, but the real challenge is key management. And people, <laughs> everybody will agree with you. Anyway, um, I guess my one, my one regret here is that each of these little successes associated with cracking the keys is just really um, going to make it you know, that much harder. That is, the, each iteration is going right. to become much improving. more sophisticated. So we really have to be kind of focused on prevention of the infections in the first place as opposed to the recovery from the infections. Right. Yep. All right, so John, Mark, let's go to you. And um, uh, there was some news that came out about um, breaking Apple devices, and perhaps you can put a little bit of reality around this and explain what's going on. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's let's shake some of the, the the fear and you know uncertainty and doubt on this particular issue. The a few few weeks back, you know, there was a big story about that. You know, if you took an Apple device and set it back to January first, nineteen seventy, you would actually break it. You know, it would be no no use whatsoever. Y'all, I'm sure remember that. You know, and then you know Apple came back with here's how to fix it. They actually even fixed uh, you know our solve it. Here's and they came out with a fix and uh, upgrading to Apple iOS nine point three. Well, some re researchers actually thought to themselves, well, what can I do to cause this same effort without having to actually physically get the device in my hand, right, and change that time on the device? And so they got to thinking about the NTP, you know, the, the net time protocol, and, and is there a way to set up a NTP server on a local segment and force a device to change that, that clock back? And if it's not already updated to iOS 9.3, again, it would brick it if you forced it back to to uh, January 1st, 1970. So, so they came up with this idea, fairly theoretical. Of course, it requires you know to be on the same network segment. It requires you know an NTP server to be on that. You know to have a rogue NTP server on there to do man in the middle type attacks. But theoretically, it is possible to force it of any device, really not just Apple, but any device back to a certain date. Yep. 
And, and they showed that, that if, if you hadn't upgraded it, you, you could break your device if you weren't on the latest version of Apple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think um, one of the things you're sort of pointing out here is that there are some inherent, I'll call it authentication issues associated with NTP. I think to my knowledge, it's only recently that some work has been done on building in some authentication capability in NTP so that you'd be able to, as a part of the application, assure that you are talking to a time server that you're expecting to talk to. But um, I don't think that's in very wide use at this point, or even if, it, if the standard's even complete. I have not been tracking that specifically, but um, it definitely is something that's needed, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't think it's been accepted. And, 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 and part of the challenge, of course, is is you know who who has the time you know and where, and where does it come from right you know where does mm -hmm. where does it actually get set at you know and in this particular issue the good thing at least even the fact that Apple's got a patch is that the um, if you're on an LTE device LTE actually gets their time from the from basically the cell tower you want to mm -hmm. think about it that way and, and so that's its first choice and so even if you put up a rogue NTP you'd actually have to put up a false base station so not only would you have to put this fake NTP you'd also have to do a false base station which would only impact devices that were not LTE enabled, which is very few things nowadays. I think I, I recall when we were discussing this, um, you know, perhaps about a week ago, that you did make a pertinent point that even if this attack were successfully conducted, that the only thing it can do is really brick the device. You can't steal any information. You can't really control the device. And so integrity and confidentiality aren't compromised. Well, in fact, confidentiality becomes somewhat permanent because whatever was on there gets destroyed right? and, and they actually have they have solutions now that if it is bricked you can get it back oh so that's it's even not, better. it's not permanent all right good so like i said i got to thinking about time and i wanted to kind of talk about you know time because a few years back when i was a unix admin <laughs> i was actually managing a lot of the ntp stuff on firewalls and i got to thinking well what is these key elements of time and you know and a lot of people know about ntp i know brian you talk a lot about the attacks on you know port one two three you know you see on denial of service you know, that's all NTP and, and, and clock sets. We see that a lot of traffic, you know, and typically that set, at least in the United States, you know, I think it comes out of the, uh, was it in Colorado, I think, is the master uh, clock? Yeah, NIST standard, yeah, there's a, I think it's a cesium clock, if it's still cesium, it could be a little bit, but yeah. basically atomic derived time, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and then, but for, for mobile, especially a lot of carriers, we actually use NITS, which is Network Identity and Time Zone. It's actually a, a, a different kind of uh, standard. It doesn't have to be quite as down to the microsecond or picosecond. I don't even know how the TP, how far it goes down to some systems. But it doesn't have to be that specific, but it does have to be accurate. And, 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 and because it doesn't have to be global, it just has to be just for that tower, NITS works pretty well just being fairly close. Mm-hmm. There is some discussion as should should you know uh, cell providers go away from NITS, but it, it's 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 still that's kind of the standard we're at right now. And then another term that people like to you know like to talk about, like I said, this is the Unix background in my head, is epic time. And, and if you ever mess around with the cloud, actually Unix operating system, the source code, you, you'll see that it's all based on this number of seconds since Greenwich Mean Time or UTC, however you want to call it, in January first, nineteen seventy which we just talked about in Apple, that that's a date that Zenith, you know, matches <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the bricking issue with Apple. And that epic time is real key in that, you know, it, it is something that doesn't change. It's just a tick, 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 tick. doesn't recognize leap seconds, which is where you have to come in with NTP to fix it. Um, Unix and Unix-based systems do use it. And, you know, think if you think about the devices we have today, 
almost everything is Unix based. Mm -hmm. I mean, just you just 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 you know just rattle off so, you know a couple operating systems, a couple devices, and somewhere down at that core, there's a Unix. Yeah, at least derived from Unix, right? Yeah, I mean, Android's there. Your phones, you know. I mean, some people would argue Microsoft Windows is Unix based. You know, if you know, it depends on <laughs> how much of a Unix guy you are, gearhead. You could maybe argue that point. But the the thing that I always laugh about is is I, I have this date that I'm going to retire, and that has to be before January or January nineteenth, twenty thirty eight, and because that is when Epic time runs out. So in the old Unix days, we had a signed integer which was thirty two bits long. And it runs out a number of digits on January uh, uh, 19th of 2038. And so if you have an older system that has not been updated to, to change that to 64 bits, time ends on that date. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the last day that I, I, I know I have to retire before that date. <laughs> because there's a, yeah. there's a lot of systems out there that are not going to have updated to 64-bit time. Yeah, so, it's a, so what you're telling us is January 19th, 2038 is the new Y2K. Is that what you're... Yes. Do you remember the Y2K <laughs> yeah. thing, John? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and, and when I had Unix systems, I didn't really care too much about Y2K because it didn't bother me, right? And I was working Unix admin and... 2000 and I didn't care because my, my systems ran great but I know a lot of the other systems had problems mm. but this this is it this is the yeah. dead this is the drop dead date if you've not updated to newer operating system newer kernel this this is it all right well it's like you said most have been updated and uh, hopefully that'll be the case as we go forward I remember you know the y2k thing was a big concern a lot of work went into it and um, it turned out to not be that big a deal after all perhaps because a lot of work went into it so uh, I think the, uh, some of the effort had already been put into correcting this problem. Hopefully it'll be a, a non-issue by the time 2038 rolls around. Plus so all of us will probably be retired by then, right? No, I'm going to be working still. You're still going to be yeah, working? I'm still okay. be working, yeah. <laughs> I and, think and, I'll be retired. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. I'll be working on my retirement. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so... Um, Next item here, John, we'll hand it over. John Hogeboom, we'll right. hand it over to you. And uh, so we did a little bit of investigation and uh, found some information about a botnet doing some denial of service attack activity, and you have the gory details. Yeah, so there's this um, botnet composed of, and not surprisingly, a bunch of these closed-circuit television DVR cameras, you know, these... OEM boxes, anybody can mm -hmm. get, and there's all these different versions of them out there. You go to any big box computer store, they have these eight camera, 16 camera versions, 32, anyway. So you know. Anyway, so there's a particular one, net surveillance. That's how it identifies itself. I think there's actually a more specific vendor involved here that's on top of that. Mm. But in any event, uh, what we've kind of picked up is that uh, on these devices, they're being compromised because they have a default password set. And um, there's two malware families getting dropped on there. There's a Linux backdoor FGT, uh, which is a really popular DDoS piece of family malware. Mm -hmm. It's getting dropped in slash dev DVRS helper. Um, and that kind of is handling most of the DDoS C2 functions. However, there's another uh, piece of malware also on. I don't know if it's two different actors or if it's the same person, but I think it might be the same actor. Um, there's another fa uh, malware uh, piece that gets dropped called that's uh, Linux Tsunami, which has a lot of the same functionality that the Linux backdoor FGT does, but they're primarily using that one to do all this 23 TCP telnet scanning and brute forcing. Mm. So you know that so we see that in the yeah. yeah we see that in the um, 
internet weather reports that you do at the end of the show. And um, uh, probably these guys are contributing to that type of activity. I got a chart that kind of shows the distribution, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I presume that they, the, there's not really much of a patching process associated with these devices. Either. Probably not, but I didn't yeah. really research it in yeah. depth. From my understanding, they usually don't. A lot of these things are coming out of China. They're very kind of low-end products. I don't mm -hmm. think they get a lot of patching support. It's just kind of whatever you get when it ships is what you get. Right. Yeah. And they're, they're pretty low one. cost. Yeah, I've had mm -hmm. one for probably four or five years, mm -hmm. and I have not We've had seen it. yours. It's that little orange dot right oh, over there. Yeah, got it. <laughs> so this is a picture of just kind of geographic mapping of uh, where most of these are from. And like I said, it is a very specific model that this botnet seems to be recruited from, which right. I thought was interesting. It seems that there's more density of this particular mm -hmm. manufacturer's product in certain parts of the world. Yeah. So we notice Russia and Romania, a lot of these Eastern Bloc countries, I guess, like Bulgaria, um, I think there might have been Ukraine is in there, mm -hmm. uh, but then also Vietnam and Taiwan. So towards that, you know, in the Europe, uh, the big yellow mass in there is really kind of Romania, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I think over on the right in the Asia pack, you have Taiwan and um, Vietnam, uh, Vietnam yep. in there, uh, kind of accounting for a lot of those. Uh, but in the U.S., it's pretty sparse, except for, you know, Manny's uh, showing up there. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, Brazil, also in South America. So it's kind of interesting to see where, where the majority of them coming from. And from a strength, I also noticed, like in terms of how much power mm -hmm. they're pushing out, DDoS power, the Russian Romanian ones really have, they seem to have really good bandwidth. I'm not sure why that is, but in any event, they seem to contribute more to some of these DDoS attacks that we've well, been good seeing. Good for them. They have good network service. That's good. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So let's go into some other aspects of the internet weather here and uh, looking at the last week or so. And oh, surprise, surprise, there's scanning activity on port 23. Right. And uh, a lot of it's associated with not necessarily just this spot, just not, that, but not others that are that, doing but right. lots of other ones. Uh, lots of other ones. Followed by port 22 TCP, 3389 TCP, that's remote desktop protocol, 445 TCP, 8080 TCP. That one moved up about 10 slots. Although uh, we're going to take a look at the graph on a, uh, on a few of these, and you'll find that that one's not all that impressively changed, but you'll see it. 443 TCP is next, followed by 25 TCP, 143 TCP. 143 is, uh, uh, is mail. that the I, IMAP? Yeah. And then uh, 1911 TCP, that's the one that we had associated with the industrial control yeah, uh, activities as well. Fox. Right. Okay, so, and then looking at the... Uh, most sources doing the probing. Port 23 has grown a little bit since last week. It hasn't really changed in ranking because it's at the top of the list by far in terms of ranking, but it has grown in terms of proportion of the activity that's taking place there. We'll take a closer look at that. You'll see why, and or at least the, uh, the, the parents of that and how much. Followed by 53.413 UDP, that's that uh, Netis router backdoor. We'll take a look at that one and the progress associated with it. Um, and then we have some ICMP in here also, which is uh, pretty typical of the case. ICMP type 3, by the way, is basically a um, administratively denied or basically you can't get there from here message. Followed by 445 TCP, 53 UDP, that being DNS. 8 ICMP is a ping request. 0 ICMP is a ping response. And so that's often used to be able to identify machines, perhaps even for exploit purposes. But uh, there's a lot of that on the internet. Um, you'll see that scanning around. Followed by 2816 ICMP. Well, actually, it's not 2816. That's uh, actually another uh, 
denied response message, uh, which is actually ICMP uh, type 11. And then 27.015, we looked at that last week. Uh, that's associated with gaming activity and uh, a little, some interesting observations there. Nothing malicious associated with it. And then last but not least here, 40.28 TCP, which um, remind me here, John, we're going to take a little look at that. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen a real rampant uh, increase in scanning on it. Mm -hmm. The only thing we actually really have tied it to is uh, older report on Light Hydra, right. which is another Internet of Things embedded device mm -hmm. uh, piece of malware for Linux, like these embedded Linux systems. Okay. So it might be related, but I don't know for sure. We're All still, right. the jury's out. Well, we'll take a little closer look at it, and I think it's been pretty standard as it's been going along here. So looking at scan probes as well as sources on port 23 TCP, I've combined the graphs here. The top graph is showing the number of probes bottom graph showing the number of sources. You can see sort of a correlation over the last week or so here where there's been an increase in the number of sources and more of a ramped up increase in the number of probes that are taking place. But we're still not anywhere near where we've seen uh, our peak at in the past. Uh, so for example, we're, we're seeing on the order of about 100,000 sources in a given hour, maybe a bit 105 or so. Whereas uh, we have seen peaks up around 150, 160,000. And through the course of the day, that amounts to on the order of about 300,000 sources, give or take some. That's a pretty significant number. I mentioned earlier, you know, Google had a report where they said they had identified about 768,000. I'm not sure I got that number exactly right but they were infected websites. Now, if you consider the pervasiveness of websites, here we are uh, on a given day seeing on a given day seeing on the order of 300,000 infected devices that are scanning the internet on port 23, which you would think doesn't belong on the internet at all. So very, very strange things going on here. Next item, scan probes on port 3389 TCP. That's remote desktop protocol, by the way. This is obviously very spiky activity, and you can see that um, it's not an obvious upward trend here. It could be just that there was uh, some spike, spikes in activity in the recent days, so that would be the explanation for the um, prominence in the uh, top 10 graph. And then the uh, scan probes on port 8080 TCP. This is you know, really an alternative port for web traffic, often used for proxy traffic proxy as well. Proxy administrative portals for various types of right. services, things and, like that. Um, you know, there's always scanning activity on this one in the order of tens of millions per hour. There clearly is a little bit of a more significant density over the last few days as well as an increase in the activity. So it doesn't look like this is a significant trend. It's just uh, something that caused it to kick up a little bit relative to what we'd seen over the last week or so. And then looking at scan sources on port 53413, Certainly down for what we've seen, and we're looking at 90 days of activity here, but over the last week or so, some increases in that activity. So oftentimes what'll happen, perhaps not often, but uh, what will happen in some cases is a botnet operator might get to a point where they, what I'd like to call saturation, they've recruited as many of the devices as they want to, or they need to, or they can, and then uh, they'll relax the scanning activity. We've seen that over that over the last few weeks. And perhaps over time, they start to lose those devices because they've been reset or the owner noticed there was some kind of problem and they repowered the device and uh, cleared out the malware and they have to go back and recruit again. So that is perhaps what we're seeing in this increase of activity here.
And then, as we just discussed, uh, scan sources on port 4028 TCP. Uh, this is registered to DT server, and you know, I went down the path of sort of a conspiracy theory here. Uh, DT server appears to be associated with a basically a, uh, a dynamic terrain server, which is uh, basically for simulations. They use them for, uh, you know, basically uh, battlefield simulation type things. Uh, but I think it's the uh, most likely the case that you described, John. Else, because when I, we looked yeah. at the sources, um, it's a lot of these embedded devices again, similar to these, right. these DVR systems, home routers, network test storage, all those types of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, it makes me think that that light IDRA connection might be right. related in some way. And that does make sense. Uh, and this is clearly botnet activity. Uh, we're look, we're you know, looking at it in terms of the number of sources that are doing that scanning activity on the order of about 2,500 or so. And then when you look at the geographic distribution here, a little bit of a strange geographic distribution in my opinion. Uh, we see some really heavy density in Iran, uh, some in Cambodia. I don't recall Cambodia showing up in too many other cases. Some in the Philippines and some in Brazil as being the real concentration areas. I don't know how those particular countries are picked, but it seems like perhaps it was a deliberate choice by the botnet yeah, operator. It's highly unusual. Like we don't see a lot of scanning. Not a lot of scanning. Of, we don't see much of anything coming correct. out of them. Period. Yeah. So it is yeah. interesting. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find the AT&T Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech channel. It's on YouTube, as well as an audio podcast on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. I'd like to thank you, John Markley, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, John. <laughs> Thanks, John Hogeboom. Thank you, Manny. I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.